Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner, Academy Travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers Week, the odd restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. In just over three weeks, Australians will vote on whether to change their constitution by acknowledging Indigenous people as the original custodians of the land and implementing an Indigenous voice to Parliament. In this week's ABR podcast, Professor Desmond Manderson takes us back 60 years to the 1963 Yirrkala Bark Petition, drafted by Yulngu leader Yunipingu. The Yirrkala Petition called for constitutional recognition of Indigenous rights, and as the inscription on Bark suggests, Yunipingu was alert to the formal elements of his appeal. He understood, explains Manderson, that legal arguments required not just new ideas, but new aesthetics, new songs, new ways of touching the heart. Desmond Manderson is Director of the Centre for Law, Arts and Humanities at the Australian National University. Here he is with Unipingu's song, Constitutions as Acts of Vision, Not of Division. From the age of 15 until his recent death at the age of 74, the great Yolngu leader Unipingu, 1948-2023, was at the forefront of the struggle to change the Australian legal system in unprecedented ways. In 1963, with his father, Mungarawai, he drafted the Yirkala Bark Petition, which presented to Parliament an eloquent claim for the rights of the Indigenous peoples of Arnhem Land before their country was, without their consent, turned into a bauxite mine. The Bark Petition was no ordinary document. On the one hand, It uses the antiquated language of a traditional humble petition to Parliament, concluding in forms of speech that have hardly changed since the 17th century. And your petitioners, as in duty bound, will ever pray. But two copies were presented to Parliament, the other in the language of the Yongu. So too, the typed petition is attached to a traditional Yongu bark painting, which represents the two clans most affected by the proposed mining activities, and which establish according to Yongu law, their legal ownership of the land. The document was an unprecedented act of cross-cultural imagination. In both form and content, it did not simply translate Aboriginal claims into the existing categories of Western law. It aimed to assert the independence and integrity of Indigenous law itself. The select committee appointed by Parliament to consider the case made a range of recommendations, including compensation but the Menzies government paid no attention and granted Nabalco unimpeded rights to mine the land. 
However, Unipingu was not about to stop. In the 1971 Gove land rights case, he shifted his ground from petition to a claim of right. The plaintiffs demanded nothing less than a complete repudiation of terra nullius, the legal doctrine in accordance with which the colonial legal system had dismissed even the possibility of Indigenous property rights since colonial settlement, describing Australia as empty land, desert and uncultivated, peopled by tribes so low in the scale of social organisation that their usages and conceptions of rights and duties are not to be reconciled with the institutions or the legal ideas of civilised society. Alas, Unipingu's second bold challenge was another failure. Justice Blackburn, in that case, categorically stated that if ever a system could be called a government of laws and not of men, it is that shown in the evidence before me. Nevertheless, he concluded that under Australian law, his hands were tied. Terra nullius was false in fact, but true in law. But this cognitive dissonance unsettled our views of the possible and paved the way for the High Court to finally overturn Terra nullius in Marbo 20 years later. No success without failure, or rather without the kind of failure that haunts the conscience and forces us to start to reimagine the fundamental bases of the legal system. Meanwhile, Unipingu continued to probe the legal system's every weakness. In 1978, as chairman of the Northern Lands Council, he helped negotiate and then administer the Breakthrough Northern Territory Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which placed 70% of the land mass of the territory under Indigenous control. In 1988, he presented the Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, with the Barunga Statement. Not a humble petition this time, or a claim based on existing law, but a set of far-reaching demands. In form two, it once again combined Aboriginal art and identity with English language demands in ways that subverted any neat legal hierarchies. In 1991, Yothu led by Unipingu's younger brother, Mandawe, entered the fray. Together with the rest of the band, the two brothers wrote, performed and released Treaty, a piece of great musical power that became the anthem for a new generation of Aboriginal activists. The use of music was yet another way in which Unipingu understood legal arguments as requiring not just new ideas, but new aesthetics, new songs, new ways of touching the heart. Indeed, what was Yothu Yindi but a musical expression of Unipingu's uncompromising legal hybridity, an all-Indigenous band playing modern rock to an Aboriginal beat. In 2015, Unipingu was appointed to the Referendum Council. Two years later, it produced the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Here once more, we see a highly creative approach to lawmaking. In its use of Indigenous art as a literal framing device, the Uluru Statement follows in the footsteps of the strategies of visual resistance pioneered by the Yakala Bark Petition and the Barunga Statement. In language, however, the Uluru Statement marks a departure from the formal, almost legalistic English of earlier documents. Instead, the Uluru Statement is poetic, emotive 
and intimate. It no longer attempts to mimic the voice of others. And I'm quoting here from the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth language in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. Above and beyond its specific legal proposals, of which the voice was the most prominent, the statement from the heart reached out across racial lines, seeking a new mode of engagement in which our legal relations could be reimagined precisely from the heart as well as with the head. What was being sought was a new affective constitution that would bind all Australians, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal alike, to it. And I quote again, we seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. In its consistently innovative and expansive understanding of legal change, its hybridity and its aesthetics, its voice and its art, the Uluru Statement is neither trivial nor accidental. On the contrary, it reflects a profound vision for what it means to change a law or a constitution and how that change might come about. The voice to Parliament, to be voted on by the Australian people later this year, stands at the end of this long process and perhaps as the ultimate challenge of Unipingu's creative vision. On one level, a constitution is simply a piece of legislation on steroids, a formal arrangement about the division of powers within a polity, entrenched to make it more or less difficult to modify. But on another level, a constitution is not an act of division, but an act of vision, an articulation of values, histories and aspirations. The idea that constitutions, as well as being merely textual instruments, are repositories of stories and values is most obviously true in places such as France or the United States, in which the constitutional order is embedded in a narrative of struggle and liberation and progress. It is equally true in places like Germany and South Africa, where the constitution represents a critical opportunity to reckon with and break from the past. All over the world, Stories of nation-building, constitution-making and revolution are constantly re-inscribed through school texts, annual holidays and rituals, pilgrimages to sacred sites. The matter is less evident in Australia, where the constitution seems to have so little to say about who we are and what we stand for, but neither it nor the judicial decisions that interpret it are devoid of a sense of Australia's history or its trajectory, the past from which we come and the future to which we reach. It is this social and historical context that gives the Constitution its power to bind us and that makes it and the referendum something which actually matters. What is at stake in these different ways of thinking about the Constitution? is the relationship between law and time. According to a formal or technocratic view of the law, 
The question of the legitimacy of the Constitution, or putting it more broadly, the social contract between citizens and the state, its vision of the nature and our future, are questions which are decided in the founding moments of a legal system. Let us say, in the case of Australia, from the Tenterfield Oration in 1889 until the passing of the Constitution Act in 1900. Or, in the case of the United States, from the Declaration of Independence in 1776 to the ratification of the Constitution in 1787. Whole communities participated in shaping those debates and in the process gave shape to the polity to come. Once a new legal regime has been brought into existence, however, those contingent and participatory opportunities are thought by many to vanish, like the morning mist, once law's new sun has risen. But for many recent writers, this constitutional moment cannot simply be relegated to the historical past. The upholding of a legal order is an ongoing task, not an historical fact. It is not enough to thank the founding fathers and move on. Neither is it only judges, politicians or lawyers who were involved in this process. Writes constitutional theorist Paul Blocker, and I quote, Constitutional experience consists of an ongoing process of imagining and performing the constitutional through fictions, metaphors, images and conceptions. And in this depends on political imaginaries that shape and limit views of the possible, but that equally provide a basis for reimagining the constitutional order. In some tiny but important way, if I may paraphrase, Every day marks a new dawn in our constitutional life. From my admittedly limited understanding, it seems to me that Indigenous Australians have a profound and intrinsic awareness of this approach. Traditional Indigenous communities do not delegate law to lawyers or relegate it to the past. They consider it a collective, continuing and everyday responsibility. In Every When, an essay recently published in the Griffith Review, Michaela Saunders observed that Western time is linear and singular. Aboriginal time, she argued, is everywhere at once, not just time of a longer duration, 65,000 years and counting, but the past and present experienced simultaneously. And now I quote, Time forever back and time forever onward lives in the land. All times are compressed and nested inside country, like sedimentary layers. And so it is inside people too. Time is inheritance. We are all embodiments of our families through bloodlines, and we personify our communities through culture. The way Aboriginal people make sense of ourselves is through our kinships, and these relationships deepen through time and across generations accumulating stories in the process. Aboriginal people talk of the past as though it is with us because it is, she writes. For us, time is deepening and accumulating. One way I've come to understand this idea is through Aboriginal rock art. An old master like the Mona Lisa is put behind plate glass and a phalanx of security guards prevents us from getting close to it, let alone touching it. 
its age separates us from it. It is not protected for us, but from us. Some Indigenous rock art is far, far older. But that does not mean that it has remained untouched ever since, a shrine to the past. On the contrary, in many cases, such art is regularly refreshed. The act of repainting the art is categorically not vandalism. It is rather a reaffirmation of its value and meaning to the community, a ritual process which brings the past to life in the present. By repainting the art, its custodians, although they are not its original authors, contribute to its meaning, deepening and accumulating their relationship, as Saunders wrote, through time and across generations. Sometimes the artwork itself may even be changed or reinterpreted in the process. This is a very different way of understanding the relationship between past and present, between history and myth on the one hand, and the role of law in our everyday lives on the other. But it is striking how closely this idea parallels Paul Blocker's urge to reimagine the social contract in the Constitution, not as an artefact locked in the vaults of linear time, but as an artwork whose place in the social order requires our active participation here and now. A constitution, to shift the metaphor to a different example reflecting the same underlying logic, is like a songline. It is not the record of a past event, an historical document or story that recalls what happened at a particular point in the distant past. It is a world which we are obligated to sing into existence now and every single day. The Constitution, in short, is everywhere. The voice to Parliament, like the statement from the heart before it, and the Gove land rights case before that, and the Yirrkala Bark petition before that, and Indigenous visions of lawfulness stretching back many millennia in a wise and steady flow, is an expression of this everywhere, rock art, painted and repainted, song lines constantly being sung and re-sung in a collective act of the imagination. The coming referendum is therefore not just about specific institutional arrangements. It pits two opposed ideas about the relationship between the constitution and the people. The constitution as a formal or technocratic document held like aspic in time, or the constitution as an ongoing discourse about how we need to learn to listen to one another and to talk to one another. The no vote responds to a certain way of thinking about law, time and citizenship. The yes vote derives from a very different way of thinking about law, time and citizenship. It echoes ways of knowing with which Indigenous Australians are familiar and from which the rest of us still have much to learn. Above all, this is what informed Unipingu's vision of the law throughout his life, a vision of the constitution in this broader sense, as social and creative, embodied and embedded in cultural forms and vernaculars, constantly responsive, to the changing dynamics of communities, seeking the words and the forms that best bring people and peoples together in better ways of living together. 
Like all of Unipingu's many and varied endeavours, the voice to Parliament seeks to incorporate new voices in a new song, reflecting a distinctive vision of what constitutions are about and why and when it is the constitutional moment of our time. In August 2022, at the Gama Festival, another important cultural event which Unipingu and his brother established many years before, newly elected Labor Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met Unipingu for the last time. Albanese announced the roadmap for this year's referendum. Unipingu reportedly asked the Prime Minister whether he meant what he said. He would not have been the first Indigenous leader to doubt the value of the white man's word. Albanese's sincere commitment has something of the gravity of a deathbed promise about it. In 1963, Parliament let Unipingu down. In 1971, it was the judiciary. In 1988, a Labour Prime Minister. In 2017, a Liberal Prime Minister. In 2023, it is the people's turn to have a say. Sadly, Unipingu passed away in April. The voice may be his lasting legacy, his last great creative act, or the last in a long line of courageous disappointments. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.